December is just around the corner. For those of you who are disturbed by the lack of Christmas um, cheer around here, the first week of Advent is officially next Sunday. I don't make the rules. The rules are made by the people who make the rules. And so between this Sunday and next Sunday, there will be a transformation that will just blow your mind. If you would like to help with that, um, let me know, because you can come up this week and help us. But uh, the, we're, not, we're not super high church here at the Vineyard, but we do lean into um, some liturgical rhythms, including Advent. And so the first Sunday of Advent is next Sunday. We will begin that journey with believers around the world of anticipating uh, the birth of Christ and walking through that together. And so join us for that, but you're here, so join us today too. Um, this is this is this is a good day to be together. We are uh, in the series of Advent. We're going to be looking at this idea of home, which really just sort of is a nice transition from our fall series of belong. But today, what I would like to do, kind of tagging off of Josh's message last week, is is set up this idea for us of home. Last week, if you were here, um, he talked about. From, from John 1, um, that Jesus came and he pitched his tent among us. He made his home here with us. And so this week, I want to take a little step back and take a look together at this journey home. Um, Jesus, our true home. Uh, who is this guy? Uh, no, that's, I don't know. I just made that up. Um, but, but who? I mean, we're not going to be talking about that particularly, but Back to the notes, Breed. Okay, so the idea, though, is to take a step back and look at Jesus um, from, from kind of a roots perspective. Where did, where did Jesus, Jesus did not just appear on the scene, um, this baby, with like nothing before and nothing after. He didn't just appear like a poof, but he actually has a story. He has a, um, he has a whole family tree. And so today... I want to just take a look at some of Jesus' history, some of his story. We're going to be spending some time in the Old Testament today um, because none of us just arrived here just in a poof, right? Everyone comes from somewhere, from some family line. Whether or not you're super connected to that or not, we all have a history. I know this, um, not this season, this... um, Recently, in recent years, people have started doing these like DNA tests. I'm not going to ask who here has done one. I have not because there is such a thing as TMI. Um, I don't know that I want to know, but you know, you like swab your spit and send it off, and then they tell you who all your relatives are. And uh, I have, I literally have some friends who have had like mind blowing, life altering information come back on some of these because it's like, what? I didn't know that this was my history. And we're, we're into digging into the roots. We're, we're becoming very interested. In, and, of course, the more technology and, you know, availability we have for this information, people are wanting to know where they came from because it means something, right? It means something. And so Jesus did not have 23 and me. Jesus was not able to swab his cheek and send in a sample. But Jesus had a fascinating family tree. And so even though... Yes, he, he appeared in such an interesting, unexpected way. Uh, there was actually quite a story preceding his arrival on the scene. Um, if we were to sit down today, and I'm not going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and tell me about some family history, 
Tell me about some relative that you've heard about. Maybe you never met them yourself. Maybe you're named after them. Maybe there's some family stories. All of us, even the most boring among us, would have some pretty interesting branches on the family tree, right? You know, there's always that story that you hear maybe at Thanksgiving, like, old uncle so-and-so, and he was this, and then, you know, he had a dog named this, and he did this weird thing, and um, all of us have some interesting, compelling family stories, and, and all of those things combined together kind of create the story of who we are and where we come from and where we're headed. And so, and so as we think about Jesus' family tree, Isaiah points us in the direction. He says this in Isaiah 11. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So Jesus had a family tree. And his line is quite extensive, and it represents a fascinating mix of lives and stories and characters and people. And as Matthew begins his gospel, he actually begins with a genealogy. Uh, and so if you want to turn your Bible state, we're going to just briefly look at Matthew, and then we're going to be back in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. But I want us to consider today, instead of skipping over what might seem like kind of a tedious bit of scripture, to really lean in a little and to look at this family story of Jesus and to consider where he came from. And so let's pray, and then we're going to read. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here today. And I ask that now, as we open your word, that you would settle on us, that you would settle on me. Would you give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear? Give us hearts that are open to whatever it is that you want to do in us today. We say yes, and we say we are ready. We love you. Thank you. Amen. Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. We're going to stop there. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So we had about 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so as Matthew begins with this family tree, in many ways it's a fairly expected thing. If you consider the genre of writing, if you consider the time, it would not have been uncommon for an ancient writer to include such a list. And to a Jewish audience, he would be proving pedigree in a certain sense. He would be saying, okay, just to show you that this is where this guy comes from. This is a very interesting genealogy. We're not going to read the whole thing, but it has three sets of 14 generations leading up to the birth of Jesus. It's pretty cool. We have Abraham to David, 14. David to the exile, 14. Exile to Jesus, 14. 
So it all points back to the words of the prophet. He's saying, hey, guys, this is the guy, and if you need me to prove it, I can prove it. But what's also interesting in this genealogy is that we find the names of four women listed. A fifth woman is referred to but not named, Bathsheba. Scholar Judy Fentress Williams calls this a counter-tradition embedded in a tradition. You see, a female would normally never be named in a genealogy. It was all so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. It was all male names. And so even though Matthew is sticking to the script, sticking to tradition, here, I'm going to lay it all out for you. He is the Messiah. Here's where he comes from, from the stump and the root of Jesse. He also, in a fun little counter-traditional way, adds in names of specific women which I love. The Bible is full of fun things, and this is just one of them. And there could be several reasons for Matthew adding in these four exceptional women's names. But in a certain sense, he is reminding his readers that God is not always at work within the bounds of tradition or what we particularly expect. God is working in unconventional ways through unusual encounters in unlikely places. And if you did not know that about God, Matthew is reminding us today. And so one such example of an unlikely person in an unlikely place at an unlikely time is the story of Ruth. And so we're going to spend a bit of time with her story today. One of these four exceptional women who was named in Jesus' family tree. I'm curious what we could learn from this branch of the family tree. So as many of you know, the book of Ruth starts out with three very desperate women embarking on a journey. We have Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. Naomi is from Bethlehem, but she had relocated to Moab because there was a famine and they needed to eat, so they relocated. While there, her two sons became marriage age, and so they found wives there among Moabite women. And so for... About a decade, the family lived in relative peace, and then, for whatever reason, all of the men died. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and Ruth and Orpah's husbands as well, Naomi's sons. So knowing that she needed to survive, she makes a decision to relocate back to her homeland. So we're going to pick up the story in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So for Naomi, this is home. For the two women, not home. So verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, she's doing the math, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? 
No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. You know, in a sense, all of us are on some type of journey home. As Josh mentioned last week, we are inherently homesick people. And really that has been true since the garden. Right? You remember Adam and Eve and they were living in this place of perfection and they everything they did succeeded and everything they put their hand to was great and there was no shame and there was no fear and there was no grief and they lived in communion with God securely attached to him and at some point after decisions were made and they were put outside of the garden we can only imagine the deep deep sense of homesickness gosh I just want to go home why can't I just go back home Have you ever just needed to go home? Just been like desperate to go home? I was watching YouTube clips this week from Home Alone. Christmas classic. I'm not going to ask who has started watching the Christmas movies, but I remember going to see Home Alone in the theater on Thanksgiving Day when it was released. I think it was like 1990, was it? I don't remember. But um, anyway, there's that scene with the mom at the airport, and she's so desperate and At some point, she just shouts at the man who's there, and she's like, I'm trying to get home to my eight-year-old son. And then, you know, John Candy comes in the polka, 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 and she gets home. But there's just this desperation. I just need to get home. I was thinking about um, even when when I was living in Chile, I was there for like three and a half years, so it was a rather short stint. But I celebrated a lot of holidays, birthdays, you know. All the days were were there, and I had a lot of fun experiences, cultural experiences. But there was something about Christmas that I just had to come home. And so I never spent Christmas there. I was like, it's summer, and the food's different, and the traditions are different, and there's no one who's going to pack up my stocking, and I could still pretend like I don't know where it came from. And, you know, like there was just something about, like, I can, I can do birthdays out of the country, I can do this, I can do that, but I can't do Christmas. I just got to go home. There are just those moments in life when we just need to go home. It was very natural for Naomi to encourage the young women to go home. Home is where your parents are. Home is where you will be provided for. Home is a safe place. You can start again. Go home. But I love the statement that Ruth makes here. It was her first and not last act of courageous faith. She makes a different decision. And what I see in Ruth's story is that the journey home is not always to the people or to the places that we expect. In this moment, she chooses to locate herself with Naomi. She says to her, you are my home now. In this act of love, 
of Hesed, which we'll talk about. She takes on Naomi's land. She takes on Naomi's God. Ruth is from Moab. She is not an Israelite, but she says, your land, now my land. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. She's choosing to share the burden. She's choosing to continue to share the grief. She's choosing to share in poverty and uncertainty, but also as a companion and as now a, a family member, she's saying, hey, home is with you now. Home is with you. And I would really love to ask her why she did it. I can't ask her that. This is where we get to use our imaginations until someday in the new creation. I'm calling dibs to sit by Ruth at the feast. I would like to pick her brain on some things. But I wonder even if in that moment, in that time, I mean, she had lived with this family for 10 years. She had been exposed. I like to say that she was Yahweh adjacent. Um, I wonder if God was working in her even before she knew who God was. I wonder what he was stirring in her, what compelled her so much to say pretty boldly, no, Naomi, you're my home now. You are my home now. There's a word in the book of Ruth, and many of you have heard it, and a few years ago we spent five weeks on the book of Ruth, so if you want to do a deep dive, it's there, probably, in the podcast universe, but there is this word, not only in Ruth, but it appears in the book of Ruth, it's throughout the Bible, it's one of those tricky Hebrew words that doesn't have a great English translation, and the word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D, my Bible that I'm reading from, the NIV, says kindness, other translations say loving kindness, mercy, loyal or unfailing love. Carolyn Custis James says this in her book, Finding God in the Margins. Hesed is driven by a loyal, selfless love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has the right to expect or ask of them. It's actually the kind of love we find most fully expressed in Jesus. In a nutshell, hesed is the gospel lived out. And by showing hesed for Naomi, by showing this sacrificial, beyond the expectations type of love for Naomi, Ruth, she makes herself vulnerable. She enters into a life of uncertainty, a life of poverty, going to a land that she doesn't know, living among people that she doesn't know. But do you know what she also does? She also opens herself up for God to write a different story. She chooses love, she chooses sacrifice, but there were no guarantees. And so many of us, if you know the story, you know how it goes. Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. Ruth goes out to glean, which essentially means that she was just picking up the leftovers. The harvesters would go through, they would get the big loads of grain, and poor women would come along behind them, and they would pick up the scraps. So she goes out to glean, hoping to just find sustenance for the day. She's not expecting to find a long-term fix, but she's hoping she has what she needs for the moment. She's not trying to make it into the genealogy of Jesus. She's trying to put food on the table. But even in this decision, again, she is showing faith and courage. She is living upright and with integrity, even as she tries to survive 
even in the small decision of what to do today, how to get food today. She shows up with faith and courage. And while she's in the field, she encounters Boaz, and we're not going to read the whole thing, but in chapter 2, Boaz, he says to her, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I appreciate so much that Boaz sees how Ruth is carrying herself. He has heard about her already, and now he meets her for himself. And he affirms and calls out what God is doing in her and what God is doing through her. He said, we didn't read this part, but he even says, you know, you didn't run after these young guys. You didn't do, there are other ways you could have done this, and you chose the upright way. You have chosen to make God your home. And so he blesses her, and he is kind to her. He honors her. And I wonder if Ruth had any idea how remarkable her actions really were. Sometimes you need someone else to call it out. You see, there is nothing wrong with just living a faithful life. In fact, I'm quite convinced that it's one of the most remarkable things we can do. And it doesn't always seem like it in the moment. It's not going to make you famous. Faithfulness is not sexy. Am I allowed to say that in church? It may not get you noticed in the ways that you'd want to be noticed. But God sees. He is pleased. He honors faithfulness. A faithful life requires sacrifice, perseverance, trust. A faithful life is hard-fought and well-lived. It's a choice. I would say in many ways, a faithful life is an act of defiance in a culture that is completely focused on self. And there might be those, as you think about someone who lives a faithful life, like, well, some people just make it look easy. Some people are just more wired toward that. Actually, I don't think so. I think if you dig beneath a well-lived, faithful life, you will actually find great depths and strong roots. And so Ruth was faithful. She was faithful every step of the way. Again, not because it was going to have a big payoff, not because she knew how the story was going to end, but she showed up with faith and courage, upright, in how she carried herself. And God saw her. And I love that Boaz called it out. When Naomi hears the story, she's overwhelmed because she's starting to put pieces together that Ruth hadn't even put together. Hey, Boaz is our relative. Ah, he could do something to help us. And so she gives Ruth instructions. We all know the instructions. You may not know the instructions. Go home, read the book of Ruth. But again, with faith and courage, Ruth makes a bold move. And I love it because her boldness empowers Boaz to step up and make his own bold move. He says, 
Ruth? Gotcha. Okay, so there's another relative who's actually closer. They might be the one, but if they don't, I will. I'm just nutshelling this because I'm so good at putting things in a nutshell. Um, yeah. But basically, the Boaz goes to the other relative. He's like, hey, Ruth and Naomi, you know them. You Because of the laws, husbands are dead. you got to step up, take them on. The other relative says, mm, I can't do that. It would mess with my, my thing. The situation that I have is pretty good. I cannot take on a Ruth. That would mess things up. And so Boaz says, great, well, you lose. More for me. I will, no, he doesn't say that. I have to stick to the notes or things will fall out of my mouth. So in chapter 4, we're jumping to the end of Ruth, not almost the end. Uh, verse 9, it says, Then Boaz announced to the elders and to the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Pilion, and Mahon. Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. And then there was a shoe exchange, and it was all official. But I love that Naomi saw it first. Now the community all sees it. And eventually, these guys don't know, but all of history will see this. And has said has made it possible. This deep, sacrificial, undeserved love has made it possible. In a picture, so, uh, scholars will say it's, it's a picture, not a, it's not a, Ruth is not a prophetic book, but, but we do get a picture of what Jesus, our Messiah, did. In, in kind of a, a dim reflection type of way, Boaz redeems and saves the faithful one, Ruth, and Naomi, because they're linked he was their kinsman redeemer. And from this moment, a new family, a new home is formed. Something new comes together. Something greater than what was before. And Boaz was under no obligation. He wasn't even the next in line. He could have easily passed on this opportunity. But he did it willingly. And I truly believe that it was Ruth's faith and courage and has said the example that she set emboldened him and gave him some courage to step up himself and his act of has said his act of sacrificial love enabled an even greater has said god enabled ruth and boaz to have a child obed who was the father of jesse a shoot will come up from the stump of jesse and so ruth ends with genealogy lest we think that this little tiny book of the bible is the rom-com of the old testament it's just like cute we can read it at a wedding i love it it is much more than that ruth ends with genealogy her story is woven into the story of jesus himself she is his family and he is hers and so I'm curious what this interesting branch of the family tree adds to the story. And there is so much. But we see in Ruth this idea of a redefining of home and a redefining of family. 
that is created by love, by said. And later, Jesus, even just a few weeks ago, I was, um, in a, I was in, we were in Mark and talking about the same idea where Jesus says, who is my family? Who is my mother? Who is my brother? Ruth, Ruth was the OG. She was the first to say, hey, I'm going to redefine this idea of family. Although a seemingly isolated family crisis during a very dark time in Israel's history, this was in the time of the judges. This was, there was some weird stuff going on. The story of Ruth ends up being one of many links in a chain of unlikely, unconventional, extraordinary encounters on the journey toward home, the journey toward Jesus. And we see in this that the story is never just about us. I am curious how the things that God is doing in your life that you may not even be fully aware of now, how those things could impact even generations after you. I wonder how each of us showing up, living faithful lives with what is in front of us, not necessarily what I ordered, not necessarily what I want. I mean, this is not, this was not Ruth's like 10-year plan. But as we show up faithfully to what is in front of us, we show up with faith and courage, upright. I wonder how God is using those things, even those seemingly small decisions, to impact generations. Because the story is never just about me. In this case, the story was not just about Ruth. And she never knew. She didn't know her name was going to be in the book of Matthew. She knew that God saw her and that he smiled on her. She knew that God created a way where there didn't seem to be a way. She knew that some pretty miraculous things happened, even the fact that she had this little baby, Obed. Because we know she had been married 10 years prior and there had been no child there. And so God, even, even in that, he saw her, he smiled on her. It was far beyond anything she could have imagined. And you know, I think the same was true for Boaz. It tells us that he was an upright man. He was faithful. He was a good guy. And I think he probably had a decent setup. But this very unlikely, unexpected curveball that came into his own life, as he said yes with faith and courage, as he practiced his own version of said, of laying down his life for others, God expanded him. He expanded his story. The story that Boaz was living was cool, but now it's like, wow, generations are impacted because of this, because he said yes, because he was faithful, even to the curveballs, especially the curveballs. I'm going to invite the team to come back up, and I just want to wrap us up today with a few encouragements. Because next week begins the season of Advent. In this season, we're going to be looking at this idea of home. And as we consider our posture going into the next month or so, I think there's a few things that we could consider. And I don't know what God is up to in each of you. He does. It's the good news. I don't have to know. He knows. 
But I know on a very base level that this season can be interesting for a lot of us for a lot of different reasons. And I think that there are some invitations in front of us. It seems that God has, he's always up to something cool, but I'm actually, I'm pretty expectant about this year. And the first thing I feel like that might be for some of you is that there is an invitation to find home in an unlikely or in an unconventional way this season. God is often working outside of the specific ways in which we expect him to be working. I think he is working in some of you and you're not even fully aware of what he's doing. Maybe you just kind of feel a little stirring. And so you don't have to have it all figured out, but just ask him what it means to be faithful. Even though you can't see the whole picture, what does it mean to be faithful with what's in front of me? And be open to God showing up in an unlikely way. I think some of us are probably struggling already. It's not even December 1 and we're already just needing it to be January. Perhaps you are very in touch with that sense of homesickness this season. Whatever that means to you, whatever that feels like to you. And for you, I ask for grace to live with faith and courage, even in a difficult season, even in a season that you didn't necessarily ask for. And I also ask the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to give you, to give us a holy imagination as we enter the season together, a holy imagination for what he might be doing that we can't yet perceive. And then finally, we remember that Jesus made his home with us. And so where he is, home is. And said makes that possible. A deep, self-giving love, a sacrificial love is what makes that possible. And so as we anticipate the coming of Jesus into our world as a vulnerable, innocent baby, may the season be marked by sacrificial love, by said. We choose how we show up in this season and in all seasons. And so may it be marked by kindness, by love, and by mercy. Let's just take a moment of reflection. I've said a lot of words, but um, I'm going to actually invite us to stand if you're able to stand, if you're willing to stand. And perhaps in whatever way makes sense to you, just put yourself in a posture of receiving, of of listening for the voice of God. Jesus, you are our true home and we are homesick for you. So even in this moment, as we pause, we just, as best we can, lay ourselves bare before him and say, this is how I come today. This is how I'm coming into this season. Would you meet me here?
For some of us, we may need to release some expectations for what it's supposed to be. We need to release some expectations and open ourselves up to the work of God in a different way. And so as you're able in your heart, if that's you, just release. And if you know it, you can even name it. This is what I'm releasing. Perhaps for some of us, there has just been a real weariness, even as we have desired to be faithful, as we've tried to show up faithful in our lives, we feel unseen, we feel tired, is it even worth it? And I think for you, the word is, is to not grow weary, but to take heart. For the Father sees you and he honors your faithfulness. If all you can do is be faithful, it's enough. It's actually quite remarkable. And so ask him for the grace that you need to carry on.